Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today we're here for the second part of our conversation, my conversation with Drs. Moshe Hoffman and Erez Yoeli about their book, Hidden Games, The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us again. So uh, last time we talked about some of the topics you cover there. This time let's start perhaps with strategic ignorance. So what is this? Strategic ignorance is um, a term we use to describe when somebody is uh, failing to um, find out about an opportunity to help others. So, for instance, um, suppose that uh, one has been involved in a bit of risky sexual behavior, but uh, knowing that avoids going to get tested for STDs, that is an example of strategic ignorance because if one would go to um, get tested for STDs, one could then act on that behavior and protect one's partner, well, act on that information and protect one's partner in the event that one does indeed have an STD. And the ironic thing here is, of course, that one, if one finds out, for instance, that one has HIV, one probably would be very careful and, and, and use protection and so on, but then one isn't being careful by finding out in the first place. Uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, yep. Sorry, I just want to add Jason Dana and I guess uh, some co-authors have some very nice kind of lab experiments on this. Um, um, uh, you remember the, the title of that paper? Uh, exploiting Moral Wiggle Room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but are there specific circumstances where people choose to be uh, select, uh, uh, strategically ignorant? Yeah, I think you see it a lot. So um, I, I'll give you two stories from, from our life. One is one time we wanted to do something on the roof at um, a lab that Moshe and I were, were research scientists at, and we, we mentioned it to the PI, to the, to the principal investigator. And um, he, his response was, no, no, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't ask. Um, so he, he's clearly like, he knows that if he's asked, he has to say something specific or maybe forbid it. He doesn't want to be in the position where he has to forbid it. And so he says, basically, if I don't know about it, I can't forbid it. Um, and then, and then you can go ahead and do whatever you want. There's another great story. There's a great example of this from the Trump era where, um, I don't remember the, the congressman, um, in question, I can look it up, but, but. The, the reporter asks the congressman, hey, did you see Trump's latest tweet? And the reporter, say, the congressman says, uh, do you want to comment on it? And the, the congressman says, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. And the reporter says, do you want, do you want to see it? I can show it to you. And, and the congressman says, no, no, if I, if I don't see it, then I can't comment on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, another real life example from the Trump era was COVID testing. Uh, you know, Trump was purposely, you remember this one, yeah. you know, purposely kind of trying to make it hard for people to get tested so that the, the numbers would, would remain low. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also remember that one, even though I'm from Portugal, but I've heard about it. Yeah. And as that example illustrates, as well as like, uh, um, is an example of HIV testing is, is sometimes the strategic avoidance of information can have real uh, you know, social negative ramifications. So in the case of COVID testing, you know, people don't know whether or not they have COVID. 
you know, it might help Trump's numbers by or, or might make it look um, better for Trump, like it's less of an issue. But it also means that like people can can't be as careful about uh, avoiding, um, you know, spreading it to their friends. And obviously the same with HIV, um, uh, you know, uh, if you don't. Yeah. It, but can I just ask Ricardo, were you asking us for real life examples or you wanted to know kind of at a more theoretical level when we predict? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point because I was going for the second one. I mean, I was yeah. trying to understand the more the yeah. theoretical aspects so, so of it. So maybe let me try and address that, um, uh, which is um, we think at least that strategic ignorance uh, is being driven by, obviously not consciously, but, but at a non-conscious level, uh, um, the reason why strategic ignorance works is because it kind of gives us plausible deniability. It makes it, makes it not uh, a lot harder for kind of other people to know for sure and for it to be common knowledge that we're, we're behaving selfishly. Um, so, um, you know, if I can't, uh, if you avoid knowing your test results, there's, or avoid reading Trump's tweets, um, there's, some chance that you just didn't have a good opportunity to collect that information. You didn't quite realize what high risk you were at for having HIV, or you didn't, you know, you were too, actually too busy that day to like read through his tweets. Um, and even if I know that you weren't actually too busy, uh, or that like you had easy access to a test, it's you know it's harder to make that common knowledge. It's it's less likely that other third parties know it. And we we make the case that. Um, a lot of uh, norm enforcement, a lot of, um, you know, the ability for people to, to punish you for misbehaving, for acting selfishly, really depends both on our first order knowledge, whether I know that you did it intentionally, but also on higher order knowledge, whether I think other people will know that too, because um, norm enforcement requires, you know, coordinating with other uh, other participants, um, uh, with other, other people, other potential observers. And so we think that like strategic ignorance is gonna be particularly, um, uh, built into our moral intuitions as it's like less problematic to remain strategically ignorant than to, you know, knowingly uh, transgress in cases where, where norm enforcement is, is playing a big role in shaping our moral intuitions. Um, and so when it's more about like private personal choices where there isn't like morality and norm enforcement at play, we think people would, would, would be more likely to collect the, the uh, personally you know, pertinent information. So for instance, if you're going to visit your grandmother, then you're going to go ahead and get tested for COVID. Um, that's a case where you're not relying on uh, norm enforcement really to, to make your decisions. You're relying on whether you want to get your grandmother sick. And if, you know, the disease that you're testing for, instead of it being something that's, you know, transmitted through sex and, and may have, therefore have more ramifications on your sex life, um, uh, but instead it's, I don't know, Huntington's disease, which there's some evidence that people are strategically ignorant about collecting data there. We would, we would at least predict that there'd be less of a, of at least this, um, uh, um, underlying, uh, motivation for remaining strategically ignorant. Now, there may be other reasons why people purposely avoid information, like, you know, some kind of hedonic hacking story or something, you know, it feels bad to know that you have Huntington's disease. So maybe, you know, some non-functional motivation is causing us to, to avoid that information. But at least that we would at least predict that this kind of norm enforcement, non-conscious motive will only play a role in the kind of social, in the moral domain where, where you know, you have to avoid kind of spreading the disease to others. But, you know, uh, 
I guess, as with all our predictions, things are a bit messy in the world. So even Huntington's disease, if I know I have Huntington's disease, there still might be social moral ramifications to that. Like, you know, if I'm on a dating website trying to, you know, find somebody to um, have a long-term relationship with, and I know that I have a disease that will be debilitating in the future, I might feel obliged to, to reveal that. And that might, you know, hurt my chances of finding a long-term partner, you know. And so so even there, there might be a, a, a moral... Uh, you know, norm enforcement component that prevents me from, from wanting to collect that information. But at least in general, we'd predict that to the extent that it's more of a private personal choice versus a moral, uh, moral social uh, ramifications, um, there'd be less strategic ignorance. Mm -hmm. So something we didn't touch uh, on last time was learning. Uh, what is learning from the perspective of game theory and are there specific types or kinds of learning that we can have a better understanding of through game theory? No, me or you? You, you go, if you don't we, mind. We, yeah, no problem. We were just covering this with our students. Um, so the reason we talk about learning uh, in a book about game theory is because uh, in order to use game theory, one is generally going to need to assume that the players are optimizing in some way. Um, there are various ways one could optimize. The, the standard way that people think about when they're using game theory is, oh, they're thinking really hard. So there's, there's some CEOs and they're, they're helpers and, and they're all in the room, in the, in the boardroom, thinking hard about making, you know, pricing decisions or where to place a plant or something like that. Or, you know, President Obama and his advisors are getting together to figure out what to do about Afghanistan or Russia or whatever. Um, lots of smart people collecting careful information, uh, going through this deliberative process to find the, the optimal solution. That's one way to optimize, but it turns out there are other ways to optimize one, you know, we use game theory to, to talk about animal behavior too. And there we're not relying on the animals to be doing the, uh, the optimization in a conscious way, we're relying on evolution. And what, what we do in, in the book is we look at domains where, okay, it's not really conscious deliberation that's doing the work. It, it, we're talking about people's preferences and beliefs, you know, how things like strategic ignorance, which obviously they're not thinking through, they're kind of doing it on an intuitive level, that we're also um, not talking about things that necessarily uh, biologically evolved. We're talking about things that they may have learned over the, the course of their lifetime. And so instead, there's this third process, learning that we think is probably doing the optimizing in their case. And there's various ways people learn. There's various ways in which this optimization process or these optimization processes work. One simple one is reinforcement learning, where you do something, you know, you wear a shirt and you see what happens and you then respond to that information. Maybe people give you compliments and if they do, you're more likely to wear the shirt again. Or maybe they tell you, hey, like that shit's a bit big on you, isn't it? And then you're like, oh, okay, maybe I should go get a tailor. Maybe I should not wear it as much. And so you do the behavior more or less depending on the feedback that you get. Um, reinforcement learning has this you know, long, interesting history of being studied, uh, going back to, to Skinner and pigeons and stuff. And we could definitely talk about some interesting results there. If you uh, go on YouTube and, and you look at, you know, pictures of uh, videos of uh, animals doing funny circus tricks, the way we get them there is, is through reinforcement learning. We give them snacks and stuff every time they do a little piece of it and eventually they're, you know, the pig is able to wheel a, a wheelbarrow around and like help you with, with your yard chores. Um, 
So that's that's one way of learning, but there's other ways. Uh, you know, we're perfectly capable of learning from others' experience, not just our own. Uh, we do this through imitation. And the important part there is that we don't imitate randomly. Uh, we imitate when it kind of makes sense to imitate. We imitate people who are more prestigious or strategies that have been more successful. Um, you know, when we when we uh, imitate somebody else's uh, clothing, we, we don't just look at anybody and be like, oh, I'm going to buy that shirt. We, we look at somebody who's a, a fashion icon like Michelle Obama or George Clooney and we're like, oh, that guy that he knows how to dress or, you know, uh, that outfit got a lot of uh, compliments and I kind of like it. I think it would look, look good on me. Maybe, maybe I'll try it. And so there again, what we're seeing is that the things that are more successful are becoming more common. That's that optimization that's going on. As soon as it's going on, we can then rely on on it uh, to uh, when we're using uh, game theory. And and in the book, there's one additional step that I've kind of um, glossed over, and that's that we, we do some work to um, establish that our preferences and beliefs are indeed learned um, and that they they have these sort of functional um, that they, they are functional and they are they don't do seem somewhat optimized in the ways that one would expect if that they they were learned. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do, do you, in any of that kind of learning and perhaps the way people are in some ways biased, so for example, paying attention to pre prestigious people and so on, uh, does it have an evolutionary slash biological component to it or do you tackle it just from a game theoretical perspective? Because, I mean, the, that kind of bias could have been and the other, I imagine, or not. I, th I, I think I understand your question. I'll try, and and if I if Mo can jump in, if he's got a, another um, idea. But um, the the link to biology is is that there's this like intermediate system. Well, ultimately, like we evolved to to have to do stuff that increases our fitness, right? Um, and and so. What we're doing here is we're relying on, on the learning systems that uh, don't directly necessarily maximize fitness, but instead what they're doing is maximizing things that um, might be related, very closely related to fitness. Um, and uh, so those are things like comfort or um, uh, uh, power or uh, access to food, um, as we already heard, or um, access to mating opportunities, things like that. All of those things uh, historically w would have um, correlated with fitness, but they aren't fitness per se. And so there is this biological basis. And, and you know, we know that in animals, the learning system is there because that allows the animal to react to changing environments in a way that... Um, uh, allows them to maximize fitness in a faster. If if the only feedback they got is whether they increase their fitness, it would be too late to react. In a lot of cases, you know, you'd have to wait a whole lifetime before basically you knew whether the things that you did worked. And so instead, um, you maximize stuff that's that's a, gives you feedback a little bit sooner. Like you know, are are you are you really cold and about to freeze to death, or or you know, did you have sex? Um, and those things. Um, will then correlate with fitness pretty tightly, though not necessarily perfectly. And um, and that allows the animal to, to react in a time frame that's uh, somewhat more helpful. A similar thing is going on here, and that's the tie to, to for humans, and that's the tie uh, that, to biology. Is that, does that answer your question? 
Uh, yes, would you like to add anything to that, Dr. Hoffman? Yeah, I, you know, I would just say, um, it, uh, just to kind of add or, or, or to clarify, um, yeah. our learning system itself evolved uh, because, as Ares is describing, it's kind of, you know, it's, a, it's a, a good way to get animals to do things that are functional, is to kind of give them these kind of this set of primary rewards to pursue and to, to shape what they're able to learn and do things like access to mates or food or, or, or security um, and, 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 you know, design a whole learning system that, that can use these rewards to shape the behavior. So long as those rewards tend to correlate with fitness and, you know, it's easy to get information about progress towards those rewards uh, throughout the course of the animal's lifetime. That's, that's a pretty good system to set up for an animal. And so, so, you know, these kind of learning systems like reinforcement learning have evolved. But once they evolve, they, they somewhat take on a life of their own. So like with some of the examples Eros pointed out, like access to, to sexual opportunities, that can still shape what we learn and, and be something that we pursue, even though in our day and age, it, it's uh, uh, disconnected from fitness. So, you know, we, we, can, we, we like sex and we pursue sex, uh, even when birth control is involved. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been disconnected to some extent from, from reproductive success. Um, and, and, and yet, because of its historic relationship with reproductive success, we, we've still kind of evolved both that taste, but also presumably its ability to shape other things that we learn by, by association with, you know, oh, every time I wear this shirt, like it, it does well for my dating life. Like that can cause you to like start liking that shirt or the, or, or you know, that style of dress. I, I, again, you know, there's some connection to evolution, but that connection is, you know, kind of a step away. Um, yeah. So uh, one kind of game that you talk about and explore in the book is the, the hawk-dove game. Uh, could you tell us about it and what kinds of situations it applies to or we can apply it to? The hawk-dove game is a game with two players. Um, uh, they are, um, it, it's designed to uh, illustrate a situation in which they're competing over some sort of valued resource. Um, the players are choo can choose between two actions. They can be aggressive over the resource or they can acquiesce. They can play hawk or dove. Um, and then um, we uh, grant them uh, payoffs based on uh, those actions. So if uh, you've been aggressive, if you've played hawk and I've played dove, you get the resource. I don't. If vice versa if i've played hawk and you've played dove then i get the resource if we both play dove then oh you know you take no you take no you take, okay let's split it so we say okay 50 50 chance or or um you get the resource or you get half i get half and then the interesting case of course is what happens when we both play hawk we, we're both aggressive over it well then uh, we assume that a fight breaks out and there's some cost to fighting and there's a 50% chance you win, a 50% chance I win. We can adjust that. Sometimes we do, but, you know, for simplicity, assume it's 50-50. And also, we each of us pays the cost of fighting. And so each of us gets V over 2, the V being the value of the good, divided by 2, 50-50 chance of getting it, but also minus C, that cost of, of uh, fighting. So that's, that's the game. Um, and this game uh, uh, has... Um, as if you make one assumption, which is that the cost of fighting is kind of big, 
um, that the resource is valuable, but not so valuable that you'll fight for it no matter what, basically. Um, which technically speaking means you're assuming V over two is less than C. Then- um, Wait, you said what V and C was, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, C is the cost of fighting, V is the, the value of the good. And um, if you if you assume that, if you assume that that cost is sufficiently high, there are two Nash equilibria of this game. I play Hawk, you play Dove, you play Hawk, I play Dove. And uh, the interesting thing there that arises then is that anything that influences our expectations over who is going to play Hawk, that is going to have an outsized um, effect on our behavior. So if I expect you to play Hawk, then I'm just going to acquiesce and vice versa. And if there's some random thing that causes me to expect you to play Hawk, then I'm going to pay very close attention to that and I'm going to abide by it. It's kind of self-reinforcing. So, you know, the classic example of this is in animal territoriality. This is what the game was developed for. And two animals show up at a resource and a fight breaks out. But if, in fact, it's not a real fight. Instead, what happens is the animal that arrived second just kind of like gives up after a few seconds and runs away. And this is a classic thing that we observe. Um, and basically what's happening there is that who arrived first, which has no real influence on the value of the resource to the two animals and or who might win the fight, who is stronger, things like that. But it's determining their intuitions over who who the uh, resource belongs to and the animal that um, uh, arrived second is, is uh, automatically playing dove and the animal that arrived first is automatically playing hawk as a consequence uh, so that that thing that ex determining expectations is playing that outsized role can we understand where certain rights come from by applying this kind of game yeah mo you want to talk for a bit no <laughs> um I, I can, I, if you prefer, then I'm happy to. No, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, um, so just as Ares is saying with, uh, with uh, you know, animal territoriality, so, uh, some arbitrary cue, um, if it shifts both of our expectations, it can be self-fulfilling. With animal territoriality, that's kind of who we ride first. Um, uh, with humans, who ride first also sometimes influences our expectations over who's going to defend kind of a, a resource. Um, uh, you know, if you imagine you come to a movie theater and there's a, a jacket sitting on one of the seats, uh, you might assume, well, I guess somebody else already got to the seat. Uh, I guess it's it's theirs. And so, so our intuition about like mine and thine is, is also somewhat shaped by something very similar to animal territoriality. It's kind of like expectation that whoever's jacket is there, you know, somehow laid claim to this uh, place. And there's no law that like, you know, will, uh, will, support you so you know if if i remove your jacket and sit down like you're not gonna like call the police on me but like you know i might expect that you're gonna behave a little bit aggressively once you get back from the bathroom and um uh you know and it's probably not worth it for me to get in a fight with you over this like stupid seat i'll just go sit somewhere else and, and so so you know for the same reason of animals animals are territorial we also have th th cues like putting down your jacket that that kind of dictate our sense of of in this case, property rights, like if you have a, a temporary right over this seat. But the same kind of logic can apply to, to other notions of rights. Um, now, obviously, uh, it gets more complicated once we talk about um, uh, rights that are very like uh, culturally evolved and have like many other ramifications, like this idea that, um, uh, um, I, uh, I, I don't know, uh, 
we we all have um well let, let's take for instance you know I, I yeah i guess maybe we don't need to get into too much too much history on like the progress of 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 rights because obviously a lot a lot more is going on there but the only point we want to say is that like if everybody believes that certain people have certain rights to certain things that can that can also be self-fulfilling just like the jacket uh in the movie theater to the extent that it, it motivates people to then uh you know fight for those rights and you know a governor look, a government looking to abuse those rights or, or or a subset of the population looking to disrespect those rights they can expect pushback if they do so and maybe sometimes uh you know there's enough collective action to um to to cause change or you know the authoritarian regime has enough power to to overlook uh the, these expectations so you know there, there's other things going on that shape our sense of rights but one important thing is that if everybody kind of believes in a certain right that that, that has some self-fulfilling effect yeah uh, another specific thing that you cover in the book has to do with apology so why is it that after you've done something bad to someone after you broke a promise or something like that you apologize and not all the time of course it depends but sometimes at least it works i mean why sh why would it be the case uh, the the apology is fundamentally just influencing expectations over whether somebody can play hawk over something um so if i did something wrong to you i um uh, didn't show up when I told you to, or, or, or I, uh, you know, wasted your time in some way, like I did this morning, I'm sorry, uh, with, with our, uh, uh, Skype snafu, <laughs> then, uh, you can, you can, um, by apologizing, what you're basically saying is I actually don't have a right over your time in that way. Um, so, you know, I do not have the ability to, to just disregard your time. Um, and, you know, I don't intend to do that again in the future. And if I do, you, you know, you would be able to get mad at me and so on and so forth. Um, so it's it's an indication of who um, of who has kind of uh, the ability to who's expected to play Hawk in that context. Um, and an apology is a symbolic gesture. It does, you know, it's just words, uh, but it has the ability to set expectations over who will play Hawk. And, and so it can work um to to do that we, we do talk about when an apology has to be costly and so on in the book but um you know like in the example that we just gave where you know i i made a mistake uh i screwed up and wasn't ready with skype and then it took a long time it wasted your time and things like that and then i say i'm sorry well in that case the, uh, an apology can can work you can kind of expect me to to not waste your time in the future um and it can kind of reset the relationship and we can continue uh, and what are the specific situa specific situations or circumstances where an apology has to be more costly for it to work? So an apology can be costless when the person um, making the apology hasn't really benefited from the transgression. So, for example, this morning, I was wasting your time, but I was also wasting my time, right? Uh, you know, clearly I didn't benefit from the fact that I couldn't figure out how to log into Skype. Um, and so like, I don't really need to, for a cost to be associated with that apology because I didn't really benefit from, from the transgression in any way. 
there are other cases where where if I wasted your time, it was because I was doing something that benefited me or something like that. And there, maybe you, it's more likely you will need a costly apology because if you can get away with, um, it, it's not really a Nash equilibrium for somebody to 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 uh, uh, transgress and then apologize. Um, they'll just take that option every single time, unless the apology, if the transgression has a benefit to them, unless the apology comes with a cost that's greater than the benefit to them. And so uh, um, if you do something to your partner that like um, you don't show up or maybe, you know, you've uh, flirted with somebody else or something like that, there you have a benefit to you. And then oftentimes in those cases, we're going to expect the apology to be more costly. Uh, a, a concrete example of this uh, that we use in the book comes from The Sopranos. Um, so uh, Tony and his wife, whose name I'm totally blanking on, um, are uh, estranged. Basically, what has happened is that his wife has gotten sick of Tony. Uh, Tony's constant uh, um, uh, affairs, and uh, they finally meet up after a while to to try to chat. And his wife basically says, listen, hint, hint, there's this house I want, hint, hint. And Tony says, great, I'll call my accountant. And now what? And, you know, the wife says, well, you can move back in. Yeah. So changing topics uh, and now a completely different thing, I guess. Why do people buy luxury items? Oh, because they look cool. <laughs> There has to be another deeper explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're doing our work for us. Um, so th there's a classic model in um, uh, both econ and biology called the costly signaling model, which is typically used to explain where this preference for uh, blingy or luxurious uh, things comes from. Lamborghinis, Rolexes, uh, you know, fancy leather bags, um, stuff with LV, you know, emblazoned on it in 20 different ways, things like that. Um, the, the model um, was developed simultaneously by uh, Michael Spence to explain, actually he was using it to explain fancy degrees. So why does somebody go get in like an English degree from Harvard? There aren't a lot of life skills that they learn that will benefit them in the workplace later. Why don't they learn something like engineering or, you know, something more practical? Uh, so that was the question that motivated him. Um, and at the same time, there's this guy, Amos Zahavi, who um, is a biologist who was um, studying ostentatious displays in, in animals like the peacock's long tail. And both of them uh, kind of came up with the same answer. Um, if we if we use the peacock example, the answer is uh, something along the lines of there are uh, different kinds of peacocks. Uh, some of those peacocks are uh, more desirable than others, uh, and in particular, some are fitter than others. Uh, they're they're better able to evade predators or uh, groom themselves or or whatever it is that that is making them fitter. And um, the uh, peahen wants to mate with a peacock that is fit and doesn't really want to mate with one that isn't fit. Um, mating with a peacock that isn't fit is a recipe for having uh, offspring that are unhealthy and she wouldn't want to invest the resources in that. She, she really only wants to invest them if the peacock is fit. But you can't observe fitness. You know, it's not like the peacock is walking around with a sign that says my fitness level is 79.4. That peacock is 34.7. Then she could choose, right? She, she has to, to somehow make this decision by looking at the peacock 
and that's it uh, w without more information. And so what happens is that the uh, nature has found this interesting way of, of effectively separating out those peacocks who are um, uh, healthier from those who aren't, who are fitter from those who aren't. Um, and that's that uh, it's uh, given them the, the option, the strategy, to use our language from, the, from game theory, of either growing a long tail or not. And a long tail is metabolically difficult um, uh, to, to grow. It's hard to prune. It makes the animal um, less uh, uh, mobile, and so it's harder to evade predators. And so it's this costly thing that the animal can do. And both animals could, in theory, do it, but only the fit one can really afford to do it without basically dying from disease or from being eaten by a predator. And so what ends up happening is only the fit peacocks grow the tails the unfit peacocks don't grow them or grow ones that are a lot less long. The peahen uh, only uh, finds attractive those peacocks that have very long tails. And this is a Nash equilibrium. And in this Nash equilibrium, notice the peacock is growing this useless thing and passing it on to the, their offspring. Um, and it's this useless thing that is just burning the key resource that the peahen cares about. Um, but it's still a Nash equilibrium for that to happen because of the fact that it allows for that separation between the unfit and the fit peacocks. And we use the same model to explain things like, you know, people like fancy cars or people like um, uh, blingy watches or things like that. They're, you know, again, there's some some um, thing that people differ on. Uh, in, in the classic case, it's it's wealth. Um, you know, there's there's somebody who's interested in how wealthy you are. You don't have a sign with your bank account on your forehead. Um, and so there's some other way that you kind of indicate. Uh, and obviously what your wealth level is, maybe it's a Rolex. The guy who's got a big bank account, he can walk around with a Rolex. I can't. Uh, and so people who are interested in, in talking to or meeting with or whatever, people who are just wealthier uh, can very easily find those people and, and ignore me. Um, and then the thing that I think makes this interesting is that people will signal underlying traits other than wealth and that um, there's this kind of game that arises where you're like, okay, but what's being signaled by this particular signal? So if we're talking about um, wine snobs, well, wine snobbery is to some extent signaling wealth because wine is expensive, but not all wines are that expensive. And you know, most of us can afford to buy a pretty decent bottle of wine pretty regularly, even, even if we're not that wealthy. Um, and so it's not just a signal of wealth. Well, what is it? Well, there, there I think, uh, what's happening is probably people are signaling access to certain uh, uh, social resources, somebody who can train you to talk about wine in the right ways and, and appreciate it in the right, right ways. And, and that's, uh, you know, the fact that you have that upbringing or the fact that you have those people in your social network is also something that people valued and can't see on your forehead. Um, and so when, when you go to dinner and you behave in a way that makes it clear that you are knowledgeable about wine, they learn something about you that's different from somebody else who can't can't talk about wine in the right way. So that that's a nice signal, but it's not just a signal of wealth and, and so on and so forth. We can you know play this game forever. There's lots of interesting signals. Mm -hmm. And perhaps sometimes there's also other traits that are signaled or at least that people interpret them as such, like for example, certain psychological traits when you have lots of money, people many times tend to think that you are perhaps intelligent and conscientious and all of that kind of thing, right? 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes the signal is, is signaling multiple things at once, as you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. Some signals seem particularly well tuned to like differentiate, to like not signal wealth, but to signal like a particular trait. Um, and so, like, I think I think that when we look at hipsters and the kinds of things they like, they're signaling all the time too, but they're not signaling wealth. They're signaling access to to actually they're probably something a few things like cleverness or creativity and so on sometimes sometimes it's things like access to to uh social resources so the idea that they know people who you don't they know the coolest people um and therefore they find out about things the fastest I and mean, this is a big part of like a more hipsterized culture um you know i knew them before they were cool <laughs> that kind of thing and and so there there instead of the you know the the signal signaling lots of things at once it's actually kind of you know including wealth it's actually trying to separate wealth out from those other things yeah so another thing then why do people sometimes hide a positive trait or achievement what do they have to gain from that so this is somewhat ironic i just want to highlight how ironic this is before i answer your question um okay. so we just spent like five minutes talking about costly signals and how people use these these signals to uh help people identify attractive things about them uh, you know other people want to know them you want them to know that and then the obvious question that arises is the one that you just raised which is that a lot of times people actually are modest about stuff or understated and uh, they don't highlight stuff in fact we think they're tacky if they do and so why why is that happening um you know i i, I always have this uh thought when we're we're teaching about costly signaling about when we tell tell our students this and then they, they respond but wait like when somebody asks us if we go to Harvard, we like actually kind of try to avoid telling them that at first. And there's this like game that gets played. And then eventually, like, you know, if they keep persisting, we'll tell them we go to Harvard. But first we say like, we go to school in Boston, things like that. Um, and and so like, obviously we're not trying to, to um, signal this too hard. Um, and the way that we explain this is actually just a tweak on the model. Uh, you take that same costly signaling model and you think about the fact that like um, sometimes what people want to signal is something about their motives or the kind of person they're interested in. So I'm I'm in this for the long run or I'm in this for the right reasons and not just to like attract anybody. Um, and in those cases, but by hiding your uh, attractive trait, you're actually sending a signal that um, uh, you know I'm 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 trying to avoid attracting the attention of everybody, which is costly because the attention of everybody is somewhat valuable, right? Like I'd like for everybody to know about my good deeds and also the particular people I, I particularly care about. But what you're doing is saying I'm willing to forego attention from lots of people so that others will realize how much I value them. Um, and and that uh, that's a valid costly signal. It's a Nash equilibrium, just like any other uh, uh, costly signal. And consequently, that can arise. And so so we see this burying behavior uh, is what we call it in the book, or modesty is what we call it colloquially, arising as a Nash equilibrium when people particularly care about matching with certain individuals and kind of want to hint at that. And there's a risk to it that you know there's a risk that people won't won't uh, recognize. Hence the cost. Yeah. 
Uh, so changing topics and talking about another kind of game that you also explore in the book, what is an evidence game and why do people play them? Mo is running back. Mo, your turn. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, no. You're explaining things so well. I'm happy to listen and chime in when, when I have something to add, if you don't mind. You know, you're supposed to, to quit when you're ahead. Um, <laughs> an evidence game is, an, is another kind of signaling game. Uh, the way that you model it again is you have receivers and senders. Um, uh, the sender will move first and it's going to, to send some sort of signal. But the thing about an evidence game is that the signals work really differently from the costly signaling model. So in a costly signaling model, you um, you know, you, you walk into a store and there's a fancy um, coat and you can decide whether or not to buy it. And in an evidence game, what's happening is that you actually um, are the one generating evidence. And so the game is all about like how, how one generates evidence, uh, what kind, well, how one passes that evidence along, how one generates it. And, and so uh, the evidence is assumed to work a little bit differently. <clears throat> you... Um, um, are are basically going to be able to, you're not going to be able to fake evidence. That's really important in these games. Um, and But you are going to be able to verify when you get evidence. And the key thing that you can mess with is how you obtain that evidence. Um, so you can, you can either pass that evidence along or not when you have it. Um, and you can invest in obtaining the evidence in, in different ways. And so that's, that's theoretically what's going on. The the thing that these games are designed to um, to get at is how people spin uh, when it comes to to say politics or you know in an interview or you know on a first date or things like that. So there's certain they're not going to just flat out lie typically unless they're Trump, um, but most people are, are are going to abide by norms against lying because um, presumably. Because you kind of get punished pretty hard for lying, but they are able to do things like, if they if they know that they did something wrong, they don't necessarily need to communicate that. Or if you know they know that that there's certain, uh, you know, think about somebody in the courtroom and you know, they know that that the bloody knife is is buried in the backyard, but they don't have to say that. Um, so the bloody knife is the evidence, but they can decide whether or not to pass that evidence on. On the other hand, you know, maybe they know on the first date something attractive about them, like they were the valedictorian in their class, they can't pass that on. Um, so they can decide uh, whether to pass it on. They can also decide how to generate evidence. So if they're, um, uh, if we're thinking about somebody who's like a climate denialist or, you know, maybe the, the Trump administration when it comes to Kavanaugh's hearing. That was, a, you know, a good example of this. They can decide how hard to dig into uh, evidence. So that they dug very hard into evidence about his, his accusers, but not very much, very hard into evidence about him. They didn't want to uncover any bad news about Kavanaugh, but they were per perfectly happy to uncover bad news about about the accusers. So, so, what what you're doing there is basically there's there's certain information that. Um, is passed on to the sender from the sender to the receiver that's verifiable, namely the evidence. But there's certain information that can't really be passed on, like how hard you searched or whether you have the evidence in the first place. And and that asymmetry between how, uh, what is passed on and what isn't passed on, what's private information, what isn't, is what generates all the interesting results in these games. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk now about the prisoner's dilemma. 
but I wanted to get specifically into the repeated prisoner's dilemma, but perhaps we have first to explain what is the prisoner's dilemma game and uh, in what ways does it compare to real life interactions? The prisoner's dilemma is uh, a really, really simple way of highlighting that what's socially optimal isn't uh, necessarily individually optimal. The idea that one can sometimes take costly actions to benefit others or to benefit society um, and uh, those actions have a cost to you and a benefit to somebody else. And so we, we write a simple game in which uh, there are two players. Those two players are deciding between cooperation or defection, cooperate or defect, C or D. Um, and if you play C, it costs you something. It costs you little C, um, but benefits the other by B. Um, and we write out the payoffs of that uh, game. And, and sadly, there's just one Nash equilibrium of the game, which is that neither player defects. Why? Because if I cooperate, then regardless of what you're doing, I can eschew cooperation and uh, as a consequence, save myself the cost C. It, it screws you, you lose B, but I, that's not my payoff. That's, you know, my payoff is that C. And so I can, I can do better by, by switching to defect. I can always do better by switching to defect. And so that's the only Nash equilibrium. And uh, fortunately, the things don't end there. As you hinted at, things get, uh, things can kind of be fixed and we can see cooperation. But uh, in order to see cooperation, we have to change the game in some way. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the fundamental ways people change the game is by having it repeat this idea that that we might interact again, there might be some opportunity to help you again in the future. Um, and uh, and so that might influence uh, players and in, uh, incentive to to cooperate uh, or, or provide a way for players to actually get cooperation off the ground. The way that game is done is we've simply played the prisoner's dilemma then with some probability delta we interact again and play the prisoner's dilemma with some probability we play again. And you know, if we don't uh, play it again, then the game just ends and we get zero forever after. Um, and and in that game, there are now cooperative equilibria, and they they arise um, only under the condition that the future is sufficiently important, that that delta, that, that likelihood of interacting again is sufficiently high. Um, and uh, they also have uh, 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 some key characteristics the the most important being that in equilibrium if you have cooperation it has to be the case that um uh if uh, the cooperation is conditional in some way on past behavior so the idea that like if you were good to me in the past i'm more likely to be good to you in the future if you're not good to me in the past i'm less likely to be good to you in the future and there are lots of cooperative equilibria but they all must have that that key feature mm -hmm. But what results do we tend to get from those games? Do people tend to cooperate more or less than expected? I think that the key thing that we learn is kind of what the what cooperation, what features it tends to have. So maybe not more. Well, we we get one one piece of in, key piece of information about uh, when people will cooperate, but we also like get some information about the characteristics of our cooperative tendencies, uh, okay. our intuitions. So so for instance, we do get uh, uh, information about people being more willing to cooperate in settings where there 
they're going to matter uh, more in the future. So in relationships that matter more or, you know, they're going to be less cooperative in anonymous situations, for instance, because the future is basically like disconnected from the present due to that anonymity. Um, so that's that directly addresses your question. But in addition to that uh, kind of perhaps almost obvious result, um, there are some additional results I think are really interesting. Uh, we're going to care a lot about things like higher order beliefs, which have come up already in this uh, uh, discussion and common knowledge. So in, in the repeated prisoner's dilemma, I have to punish you if you've screwed me. And, but punishing you kind of sucks because it often sends us down this path of like, you know, tit for tat is, is one way that this happens. Or, you know, there are other strategies like grim trigger, which are even worse, where like I, I never will, will cooperate with you ever again and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like to avoid that. And, and so suppose that you, you know, defected by accident. You, you meant to press this lever, but you pressed this other lever. I know that it was an accident. I also know that you didn't even notice. Well, in that case, I'm going to be like, mm, I, I'm not going to follow the strategy. I'm not going to, to go ahead and punish this person because you didn't even know that you defected. And, and so in that case, what we can do is, is stay on the cooperative path by me not, not um, um, punishing. And and what that highlights is the fact that if uh, if I'm going to punish a transgression, I'm only going to do it when I know that that you know that you transgress. Notice I know you know that higher order belief or that that role of common knowledge is entered. So so one thing that's really important is this role of common knowledge. And as soon as the role of common knowledge is important, students that there's that like we need to be coordinated on whether transgression occurred. And students that element is critical. All of these different uh, quirky behaviors associated with common knowledge, like strategic ignorance, for instance, are going to uh, uh, play an important role. Um, and, and that can be true for the simple repeated prisoner's dilemma. Uh, it can also be true for models that build off of the prisoner's dilemma, but complicated for, you know, for instance, like norm enforcement models, which have more than two players and aren't just about bilateral relationships, but are about how like humans achieve cooperation in, in groups. Um, uh, and so, um, and and so, uh, one thing I really like about the, the repeated prisoner's dilemma is even by analyzing this very simple game, you can start to pick out these features of cooperation that are going to be somewhat universal and somewhat constant across these various settings where where cooperation is is uh, important or arising. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask you about norms now. Uh, so in the book, you distinguish between continuous and categorical norms. Could you tell us about that distinction and how each of them arises? Sure, Mo, you, you want to jump in? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've done three or four of these uh, uh, interviews with Ricardo already, so I'm pretty happy to let his audience hear, hear your take. But so far, I've, I've you know, agreed with everything you've said and didn't feel a need to jump in. But uh, if you don't mind, keep chatting. I think, I think it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. But, uh, um, I, I, maybe the one thing that I wanted to jump in, but, but it was more just a prod to you, is before going on to norms, maybe it's, it's, it's worth unless Ricardo was saving this for later, uh, you briefly mentioning how you use some of the, the altruism theory in more applied settings to, to, um, to actually induce pro-social behavior. I, I don't know, Ricardo, do you have a, did you have a question along those lines uh, 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 later on, or, or maybe now's a good time for, for Eris to... Uh, to uh, yeah, perhaps uh, it's better for us to tackle it now. 
Cool. Sure. So um, we were building up to the fact that, that thanks to, to our analysis of games like the Repeated Prisoners Dilemma or norm enforcement games that are a little bit more complicated with more players, one can kind of characterize the conditions under which cooperation will arise and, and um, the key characteristics that cooperative equilibria will have. And that's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And if you told the CEO, I can do that, he'd be like, I don't care. Um, what he wants to know is, but how do we get like people to actually be more cooperative? Um, so you need to do some work to translate the, um, the lessons of the model to something that's actually actionable um, and, and interpretable uh, to the average person. The, the things that we found are, are most useful are three key characteristics that cooperation has. And I'm going to use the mumbo jumbo and then I'll, I'll translate it. So one is observability is really important. If I know that a transgression, uh, if I if a transgression happened, but I can't know about it, then it's like it didn't happen. Like I can't act on it. I can't condition my uh, future cooperation on information I don't have. And so it's really critical that um, uh, potential transgressions be something that people can find out about. That's uh, uh, observability. From a practical standpoint, the obvious lesson to that is if you make things more observable, people will be more likely to, to be cooperative. We've used this, for instance, just like, you know, a very simple example of this is many years ago, we worked with a power company to try to prevent blackouts. And uh, they have these programs where you can sign up and somebody comes to your house, they install this device that like basically automatically reduces your air conditioner's uh, power consumption. And if you've been paying attention to the news, this has kind of been in the news recently because California just had a massive heat wave and um, they, they turned on, they were running out of power. You know, in the afternoon, people go home, the ACs in the offices are still on, it's still very hot. Um, and people are starting to turn on the ACs at home. That's a lot of power draw and, and they just run out of power. So they can do various things. One of the things they did, for instance, here is they sent out an emergency alert and people were actually pretty responsive to it. That was kind of cool. Uh, but one of the things you can do is actually automate that and install this device that basically, like if you press a red button as the utility, those, those devices then draw down the power. So this is a nice cooperative behavior that one can do. You're paying some cost because you have to have the installer come over and you have to kind of pay attention to this and like, you know, waste some of your time. Um, but it benefits society as a whole by helping to prevent a blackout. So we worked with the utility to do this and immediately saw, okay, uh, this is a cooperative situation. Is, is, are the conditions necessary for cooperation there? And, and we looked at the way that they were recruiting people and we saw that what they were doing was asking people to call into a hotline and we're like, wait a minute, there's no observability. How will anybody ever find out you've done this good deed? And so we just changed that. We, we, we didn't do it in a super high tech way. We just had people sign up on sign up sheets and now their neighbors could tell whether they signed up. And we did some, some stuff to, to show that observability was actually doing the work here. Um, so so um, we had two versions of the sign up sheet, one which was totally anonymous, you put in a code and one where you put your name and your apartment number and so on. We compared those um, two sign up sheets and what we found was that uh, participation tripled in the group where behavior was uh, more observable. That's a really big effect. It, it turns out empirically that actually is pretty common. Like when we look at different studies in different settings, people often find very large effects of observability on prosocial behavior. Um, uh, 
And that once you have this perspective that the repeated prisoner's dilemma and models like it provide, that actually makes a lot of sense because you can't really get cooperation off the ground otherwise. Um, so that's that's one key uh, practical uh, piece. Before you, um, if you were going to say more, let me just jump in and, and, and mention that, like, uh, you know, you could think of this as a, a a nudge or nudge, I don't know, I'm mispronouncing it. It always makes fun of me for mispronouncing it. But, um, uh, you know, uh, it is an example of a nudge, but the nudge literature has been kind of somewhat under, uh, under um, criticism lately mm-hmm. for, you know, replication issues, for, uh, you know, having a hard time uh, knowing when, when a specific nudge is going to generalize, you know, if you, if you show it in, in, in one setting, will it work in another? And we think at least that the the more kind of theory motivated nudges where the theory gives you some sense of, of how general this is going to be and and, and uh, you know should motivate you into thinking that this is going to be a fairly you know robust strong effect as with observability in the pro-social domain um, that it will be a, a more kind of robust uh, nudge and and uh, that's I, I, I don't you know I guess what Ayers was was hinting at before is this one does seem to be quite robust in the literature and uh, he has a nice review paper that, that kind of looks at different nudges for pro-social behavior. And it, it seems as though, if I'm remembering correctly, observability is like the strongest, most robust of, of all the nudges that people have tried. And uh, I don't know, tell me if I summarize that paper well or, or if there's anything you want to add about that result. No, that's that's how we'd summarize it. And I'd add to that, we didn't do this in the review, which focused on field studies. But if you look at the laboratory literature as well, um, observability effects are huge in the laboratory literature. So, so you know, we're talking about if you were to standardize them, uh, things like, you know, we get 50% increases in, in contributions or 100% or 150% or, you know, it's not like 5%. These aren't mm-hmm. marginal effects with P, P's of 0.06 or 0.04. These, these are typically very large effects. And in fact, that, that was a, a point that really motivated us to try this in the field at the time. So, you know, part today we have like a very nice theoretical perspective as to why this is working but frankly at the time we weren't we weren't yet thinking so clearly about it and what we did see was that when we looked at the lab studies we were like wow these observability effects are crazy big and there's dozens of these studies that have them but like would this even make sense in the field like we should we should see if we can get this to work in the field because if we can that that's like a pretty promising result and since then you know we're not the only ones who have done this now and since then other people have sort of demonstrated various ways of increasing observability successfully um so yeah uh and i agree with mo that that i i would be surprised if this one gets overturned by the replication uh folks and I think that the theory, the theory does increase my my um, confidence in that quite a bit. So that's all right. And anyway, going back, you know, popping the stack, going back one uh, uh, to practical implications of this. So one is increased observability. Um, there are two more conditions that that uh, we can look at through our like equilibrium analysis that end up being pretty important. One is around um, higher order beliefs that have come up a few times. So we've we've basically said in these environments, there's some coordination element. We want to be on the same page on whether a transgression occurred. And as soon as there's that coordination element, common knowledge and higher order beliefs matter. Again, not something a CEO or, you know, President Obama could act on. How would how would one move from that to something actionable? The term we like to use for this is plausible deniability. <clears throat> so in in the presence of plausible deniability, cooperation tends to, to flail. 
Um, and uh, when you eliminate plausible deniability, you kind of get everybody on the same page. And, um, and, and so we think of plausible deniability as kind of the, the colloquial way of saying, hey, I know this thing was wrong, or I know that, that this person shouldn't have behaved in that way, but I'm not so sure others know that. that. In the presence of plausible deniability, that's, that's more likely to be true. And, and so the practical advice that we give is you should try to lock down plausible deniability, try to eliminate it. Um, that can be uh, take the form of uh, things like don't give an opportunity for strategic ignorance, like we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, a classic example we often use is uh, a one uh, called avoiding the ask. Uh, which is illustrated by a study in which Salvation Army volunteers would stand uh, in front of the doors of the supermarket requesting donations, and the researchers actually um, varied whether or not they uh, stood in front of one door or both doors and basically counted whether people went out uh, which door and found that when they're only standing in front of one door, people go out the other door to avoid the ask. So, you know, the practical advice there is stand in front of both doors. it, this can take the form of like asking people to take, take a pledge or make a plan in advance, which makes it harder for them to then plausibly claim that they didn't know about the opportunity or didn't know about how they would be able to help. Um, so so there's various different ways one can do this. Um, if you're interested, actually, I just put out an HBR article uh, on this. It's up on my website and, and folks are more than welcome to check it out. Um, also, it's the only thing I've ever written in HBR, so I'm sure I'm sure you could find it that way. Um, and so so that's the second piece of uh, practical advice. Um, Mo, before I move on, any any additions you'd make to that one? Cool. And then the third one is we've um, in games like the repeated prisoner's dilemma in in norm enforcement games there are always multiple equilibria and in particular there's always one equilibrium in which players are not cooperative and then there are you know cooperative equilibria and uh we think that this is really important because players in 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 practice in reality so you know when you move away from the the hypothetical game but in, in in the real world we're not always expected to do the good thing. Um, think about different norms of littering. It, it's always better not to litter, but like some places have really strong norms against littering and some places don't. Um, and in, even in societies where there are now very strong norms for littering, those are fairly new. They probably arose since World War II and oftentimes as late as 1970s or 80s uh, in, in, in the West. Um, and so, and and even within the West, there are places where where they're like stronger or weaker. Um, and so, Wait, like, jump in with a fun anecdote, just for yeah, just for the fun of it. I don't know if it adds too much intellectually, but you remember in Japan when you made the comment to me about how this Japan is even you know you think that we're strict in the U.S. or in Europe. But Eros made the comment to me when we were in Japan actually working on this book about like, wow, it's so weird. We haven't seen any litter at all the whole time that we've been here. We had been there for like two weeks or so by then. And then like literally like an hour later, we see our first piece of litter. Like there's like a, a tissue like, you know, in the in the curb, you know, in the street. And like he pointed it out and it was like sufficiently shocking because it's the first piece we saw. Literally within five minutes, you remember this, ready? Um, within Within five minutes, the store owner comes out it, it picks up the litter that was, you know, on the street in front of his store and, and throws it out. So just just fun anecdote pointing out the variation and how strict the littering norms are. It's also on stark display in soccer games. So so when the Japanese team plays, the Japanese fans clean up the stadium after the after losing the game. 
they, mm-hmm. they sit there and they clean up the stands for the other sides, uh, the other sides fans. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, go, going back to the game, what's probably going on here is related to the idea that you have these multiple equilibria. Sometimes you're expected to, to be cooperative. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes both of these, both of these are equilibria. Both of these are self-reinforcing. And so how do I know which one I'm in right now? Am I expected to, to be cooperative right now or not? Am I expected to abide by a certain norm? Am I expected to, to not litter and, and, you know, or not? Both of those are possible. Um, and so uh, uh, we tend to be fairly attuned to which one we're in, to, to whether we're expected to do a, a good deed in a particular setting. And we're, we're kind of looking for cues of it. That's a big, a big part of the psychology is that we look for cues of when we're expected to cooperate in addition to, to these other things that we were talking about. And those cues can take a lot of forms. They can, they can be things like, I see other people engaging the behavior. So the fact that we saw the shopkeeper engage in that behavior meant, oh, okay, we should also pick up litter when we encounter it. Um, and people kind of naturally do that. There are these great studies that show that when you tell people, hey, lots of other people are engaging in this behavior, it's called a descriptive norm, then uh, people tend to, to change their behavior as well. The, the classic example that's given is uh, the, the, what everybody calls the towel study, where um, uh, Noah Goldstein and uh, uh, his his uh, uh, mentor, um, Bob Cialdini, and there's one other author, I think, on the study, and I apologize, I'm forgetting it. Um, they uh, did a field experiment where they, they took the tags on the, that the hotel rooms put in the bathrooms that say, please reuse your towels, and they wrote different messages on them. And one of the things they tried was, hey, lots of other people in your hotel room, it's something like 73% of uh, hotel guests uh, reused their towels, and they found that this had a very large effect on towel reuse rates. Uh, and this has been replicated a fair amount. But you don't have to do it this way. You can do it in other ways, too. You can communicate the expectation in other ways. You can you can tell people, hey, like lots of other people think that you should do this. That's called an injunctive norm. Or you can like use identity frames, which, which basically say, hey, like you're a voter. You know, you voted in the last election. You should vote in this one, and so like now you're you're communicating expectations in this other way, or and so on and so forth. And so uh, you know, there's now now a popular way of doing this is called a dynamic norm, where um, it's not a norm yet, but it's changing. And so you're like you're, you're communicating to people, hey, like it's changing. So people talk about vegetarianism this way. It's not that that many people are vegetarians yet, but it is a very fast growing group. And so they talk about the growth rates and, and, you know, that's communicating expectations to some extent and so on and so forth. So, so the, the practical advice we give there is, Hey, like, you know, take the opportunity to communicate expectations to folks. Um, that's going to make it so that they realize this is a context where they're expected to cooperate and that's going to have an effect as well. So those are the three pieces of advice we typically give communicate, um, Expect going working backwards. Communicate expectations, eliminate plausible deniability, increase observability. Um, and whenever we design interventions, you know, we, we we do work with field partners to design interventions to promote real world um, uh, behaviors. And we just go through that checklist and make sure our interventions have hit as many of these elements in as many ways as we can. But but just to make clear that that all of these um, prescriptions are, are both the field tested but also theoretically motivated they're all, they're all driven by, by this this basic model that, that we started with about you know reciprocal altruism norm enforcement um yeah. and that's important because like sometimes people are like hey you know you did this thing to try to motivate people to to um take the tuberculosis medications mm-hmm. can you do that for diabetes and we're like wait wait like the our intervention in the case of, of, of tuberculosis is premised on the idea that 
you're not taking into account sufficiently the fact that you might get other people sick. And so we're going to design the intervention with these observability, plausible deniability, expectations things in order to get you to do that better. And sure enough, we, we've done this. It works. We've got these two very large field studies in, in um, uh, Kenya that, that test our intervention and so on. Um, our latest paper on this isn't uh, under review at the moment. But, you know, somebody looks at that and says, well, but diabetes is also, you know, a disease that uh, requires a long, in fact, it's a chronic disease that so requires an indefinite uh, length of uh, treatment. Why don't you take your, your uh, intervention and adapt it? But diabetes is not communicable. Mm-hmm. And so the key motivation for our our intervention design is is absent. There's no pro-social element there. It's all about you. Now some of the features of our intervention may transfer over, but but I wouldn't approach it in the same way. I would have to build the intervention from the ground up. And so Mo's comment about you know this is theoretically motivated. It also tells us kind of the boundary conditions of when we expect our motivation our interventions to work and when not. Um, and so you know yes for prosocial, no for not prosocial behaviors. Yes for for diseases that are communicable, no for diseases that are not. Mm-hmm. So have we covered enough ground now to get into continuous versus categorical norms? <laughs> Uh, I guess I can talk for a few minutes. Let Eros get a drink of water or whatever he might need. <laughs> um, his his um, voice can get a breather. So so uh, um, using uh, starting with the same kind of models of norm enforcement um, uh, and this idea that like common knowledge matters. Uh, there are some interesting implications about how common knowledge works and and what kinds of things then can norms condition on. Um, what kinds of things can you turn into a norm? And one key implication that, that comes out of the game theory is that you can only have norms that are very categorical in nature. Um, so you can have a, a norm that says uh, you can't use any chemical or biological weapons in, in warfare. And that norm seems to be sustainable, in, in fact, you know, for... You, you know, as much as went wrong and became inhumane in World War II, the norm against chemical weapons uh, stayed. Um, uh, uh, of, of all the rules that, you know, the Nazis were willing to break, for instance, they weren't willing to break that one because they knew that once they broke that norm, others would too, and, and they didn't want to, you know, have to have to worry about British and American um, uh, chemical weapons. So, so, so that norm stayed. And, and we, we would argue that a huge reason why I'd say it is because it's just so well-defined. It's so categorical. It's so easy for us to agree on what the norm is and who's violated it, um, uh, that it, it's, it's quite easy to enforce. But, you know, if you think that, like, norms are just, you know, whatever is, like, socially efficient, we can turn into a norm, you, there's all sorts of more continuous uh, versions of this norm or, or other norms that, that you might imagine we would and should have, but but we don't. So, you know, why don't we have a norm against just, you know, um, uh, um, wanton killing? Uh, it turns out in wars, you have all sorts of wanton killing. But, you know, what counts as wanton killing, uh, uh, you know, needless death or needless suffering? That's much harder to, to define. Um, and so so it's kind of harder to, to create and sustain a norm around that. You, you know, take, take another example. Um, th- this one, n- not about norms of war, but think, think about like going back to the domain of pro-social behavior, think about like charitable giving behavior. So you might think 
um, you know, what's really important is that we we have a large impact. And, you know, uh, maybe we should just make sure that, uh, you know, people give to the most efficient charity. So you give when it's efficient to do so. And so you might think, why don't we just have a norm that like maximizes impact and, and efficacy uh, and efficiency? And, you know, if you talk to your effective altruism friends or to, you know, the utilitarians in the philosophy department, they'll tell you, yes, absolutely. This is what we should be doing. Um, this is the only moral thing that, that, that you know, uh, ought to matter. But, you know, I guess we would argue, like with, you know, the norm against chemical weapons, uh, uh, there we argue that you really need well-defined categorical distinctions. Likewise, with charitable giving you do, and unfortunately, um, efficacy and impact, you know, that's not uh, as well-defined or as, um, you know, easy for everybody to agree upon or um, uh, as categorical. And so, so that's a lot harder to kind of create a norm around. And, and we would argue that's one of the, the main reasons why people uh, aren't so motivated to consider impact and efficacy when they give. Um, you know, it's much easier to sustain norms that say give when asked. You know, if, if the person is ringing the bell in front of the, the grocery store and asking for charity, um, uh, then you feel kind of uh, a need to give, especially if they, you know, look you in the eye and ask you as you walk out that door, um, even if that charity is ineffective. So, because we have a strong norm that says when somebody asks for a favor, you, you know, unless you have a good justification for not doing it, you should, you should acquiesce. But uh, you know, so that's an easy norm to sustain. It's it's a lot harder to sustain the norm that says, well, uh, make sure that you give your money to the most efficient charity. Um, uh, okay, so that, that's that's I guess the key point that we have about categorical versus continuous. And maybe even uh, if I may, uh, I could point to Ayers if he has any studies or things to add on how that gets uh, you know applied again in the real world or, or what kind of um, prescriptions we might have on that topic. Prescriptions wise, I think the prescription is fairly obvious. You're going to want to take stuff that is naturally continuous and find ways to make it gen genuinely categorical. Um, the the obvious example of this when it comes to, for instance, efficient giving is certification. So there is this organization GiveWell, which certifies highly impactful charities. You either get a GiveWell certification or you don't. That's categorical. Now, there are probably some charities that were kind of borderline and didn't get it, but were borderline. But that's not how certifications work. You either got it or you didn't. And I, it's actually fairly difficult to find out. GiveWell makes it a little easier than most certifications, but but it's somewhat difficult even to find out whether a charity applied for a GiveWell certification and how they did on the, on the assessment and so on. Um, and so as a consequence, you've basically taken this information about uh, how impactful the charity is, which would have been continuous. And you've actually taken away some of that information and made it categorical. You either got it or not. Um, and so that that's actually our our uh, advice. And it sometimes it's easier to use this advice than other times. Um, I remember we were working on that tuberculosis um, intervention, and we wanted to just recommend that people eat more vegetables. But eating more vegetables was continuous. And so we actually we actually changed our our um, guidance. And say eat at least you know one vegetable a day. Wait, eating and vegetables that, helps fight tuberculosis. Is that um? 
Yeah, I guess so. I guess that there is like a concern that uh, TB um, patients, uh, at least in our area, aren't eating enough vegetables, that they're not meeting their nutritional requirements. And so this was like a recommendation that the doctors we were working with had, had suggested. Um, and we changed that to eat at least one vegetable uh, once a day, which feels more categorical. You either did it or you didn't. Um, you know, it's I don't know if like that works, but that's a way in which we try to use this. Um, that's maybe a little less obvious than something like certification, where you're really just like creating some new categorical signal that didn't really exist before and eliminating the continuous one. Mm-hmm. So in the interest of time, let's perhaps talk about one last topic. And I think this one has already come about uh, in previous discussions I had with Dr. Hoffman, because it's really one that uh, evolutionary psychology specifically doesn't seem to tackle very well. Uh, How and why do people develop passions? No, you just taught this. This one's on you. <laughs> yeah, but as he said, he's already heard my take before. So I, I guess it would be good to hear, hear you explain, unless you, you, you really prefer me to. Uh, my take is wildly different from yours. So. <laughs> well, your way of explaining it might, might, might be different. All right. He's testing me on the spot. Um, all right. So the, the question is, we, we sometimes find people who are super passionate about certain things. Um, they get passionate about things like collecting stamps or, or playing music or sports or um, uh, chess or, or, you know, math or things like that. And, and that passion leads them to like spend hours doing this thing and they, they really seem to enjoy it. And the rest of us are like, math is boring and I don't really want to spend my time that way. So, you know, clearly the passion is, is working in some sense and that like it's getting people to invest in this thing and become better at it. And not all of us are blessed with that passion. You know, some of us would, would like to have that passion, but we don't. So you could ask the sort of two very closely related questions here. Why, why does passion even arise? Why do some people have this passion that gets them to, to like focus their energies on this behavior? And then also like, why only some people? Why can't the rest of us get lucky and you know, love math groups? Um, and, and so uh, that's, that's the, the question we, we tackle in the book. And, um, you know, there's lots of related questions to this too that, that one would also um, uh, potentially want to, to answer in an ideally kind of a parsimonious way. We address some additional ones, which I'm going to set aside for now. But, uh, before you go into explaining it, I, I just kind of want to highlight, uh, um, and I think this this is something that Ricardo was hinting at with, with the way he formulated the question, which is one reason why we why we do talk about passions is because a they're, they're obviously like a, a, a relevant and pertinent part of many of our lives like um we we really do try very hard to become you know more gritty or you know end up devoting tremendous amount of time to like you know uh, uh, certain activities and and you know really admire people who do uh, and it's a little bit puzzling like like there's so much variation in it like Eric said but but importantly this doesn't seem to be something that's like really well explained by uh, a, a, a more kind of standard evolutionary psychology approach in the sense that like it's hard to imagine that like passions are something that like you know in a simplistic way evolved uh because of the fact that they're so non-universal because you know what you're passionate about is so culturally dependent and even within a culture varies so much um 
And, you know, many of these things you're passionate about are just completely modern. Uh, you know, we, and, we didn't and also, evolve. And also many of them, if not, I, I wouldn't say all of them, but probably most of them the, don't have any clear link to fitness. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, immediate, clear, immediate link to fitness. Yeah. That's right. in, in fact, in many cases, um, uh, you know, a fitness perspective might lead to a completely opposite result. So like, you know, the guy who's doing proofs instead of going to parties is probably like <laughs> the fitness there is not unclear which one is going to work out better. Actually, very clear which one is going to work out better. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we, some examples of passionate people we, we mentioned in class are like, you know, uh, Murray Curie, who, uh, you know, died of cancer because she was arguably because she was so so devoted to her research on, on radiation that she exposed herself to it. Uh, um, uh, you know, she, she's not spending her time, you know, uh, having and raising offspring. She's spending it with, you know, radioactive substances that are killing her. You know, Ramanujan, the same thing. He's got a wife and, and, and kids back in India while he's in England working on proofs. Um, uh, you know, I guess he's sending uh, a little bit of money back to them, but he's not even bothering to eat uh, while going to a doctor while he's sick and dying. Um, you know, yeah, from a fitness perspective, there's, there's something, something uh, strange going on here. And you're, 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 you're going to have a tougher time applying standard evolutionary psych arguments to explain, uh, these, these type of behaviors, at least simplistic evolutionary psych arguments. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, uh, 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 just wanted to add that context a bit. But, no, no, I, yeah, I, I agree with it. Um, so, so we're, we're asking, okay, wh where do passions come from in the first place? Why do they only have to, to some folks um, and and the answer that we give in the book is, is really straightforward basically we're going to recognize that passions have a cost and a benefit um, the cost is time you could be doing something else you could be doing something other than than solving proofs you could be going to parties you could be investing in time with friends you could be uh, hanging out with family Ramanujan could have been hanging out with his family Marie Curie could have been investing in her health or her family and so on so those passions have this very clear cost. Um, uh, they're, they're getting you to invest in this activity despite that cost. And there's also a benefit, which is that you get really good at this thing. Um, and that's coming from the fact that you spend lots and lots of hours on it and, and that the passions are motivating you to, to devote those focused hours in a way that maybe you would find difficult to do otherwise. Um, and so the good thing is you got good at this. So the cost is, you know, in terms of, of time and, and investment in other stuff. And the question is, when is it worthwhile for you to, to do those good things, to get the good thing at the expense of the bad thing? Um, so, for instance, you, th there are a few things that pop out of this perspective that, that I think are useful. Um, one is there are certain kinds of activities that really seem to lend themselves well to um, really heavy investment um, in econ, they call these economies of superstars, where only really the very best people are rewarded. Mm -hmm. And passions are good at getting people to invest so much that they stand a chance of being the very best people. Um, things, think of things like in, in sports, if you want to be a basketball player or a swimmer or something like that. The, the guy who got second place might be remembered. The guy who got fourth place definitely won't be remembered. My dad was the alternate for Israel's Olympic team in the backstroke. Nobody knows that, right? 
So uh, was- Miura Curie, you know, she's winning the Nobel Prize twice, actually. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we don't we don't know who the runners up were. Uh, we know her name uh, because she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize. She's the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. That's an, it, Nobel Prizes are economies of superstars. That's right. Uh, basketball, like you either make the NBA or you don't. If you're just on the cusp of making the NBA, nobody will ever remember your name. Um, so um, scientific uh, um, discoveries, the person who wrote the paper that got published first, you know, that, you know, think Darwin versus Wallace. Um, so th- those are, are uh, very clear examples. And it, the prediction there being then that, that passions will get us to invest in particularly in areas where the, there are these economies of superstars and, you know, in, in places where maybe, uh, you know, being second best is still pretty good and, and worthwhile, like being a good friend or something like that. You don't really need a passion for that um, because you don't need to invest so much that, that you're going to be number one. It's OK if you're number two or three or four. Um, so that's one prediction here is that, like, you know, those costs and benefits, um, you know, uh, are going to push us to see passions in, in settings where there are economies of superstars. Another example of this um, is uh, when we look at the economic principle of comparative advantage. So um, how are those costs and benefits going to be pushed around a little bit? Well, suppose I'm like particularly good at something like swimming or uh, something like doing proofs. And suppose I actually don't have great social skills. Now we've pushed the, co- the benefits up, we've pushed the costs down. This is somebody who's more likely to develop a passion. A um, very stark example of this is Itzhak Perlman, who uh, unfortunately got polio as a young kid. And uh, he says in his uh, in a doc in the documentary that we watched about him, look like my parents kind of nudged me towards playing violin, and I played violin, and it wasn't like I was going to be a soccer player. So he's he's pointing out, look, my my costs have so, gone so- down. Uh, I, I can't remember if you just mentioned this, but the polio left him uh, handicapped, uh, um, uh, so without access to, to, I guess he was wheelchair right. bound. Yeah, sorry, thanks. That's that is a critical piece. He he's uh, he's uh, stuck on a wheelchair, and and he's pointing out, I'm, I'm not going. My costs, the value of my time, has has shifted in in a way that like there's certain activities I can't really engage in so productively, uh, and so that shifts my incentives towards things that that might be more stationary like music and and um i have a, a family friend who who kind of pointed out the the opposite of this when um when he went to summer camp uh Itzhak Perlman was wheeled on and played violin uh in the concert in the final concert of the summer camp and, and he was seated next to his dad and his dad turned to him and said um uh to him hey how come how come you don't play like him and he turned to to his dad and said, "What else can he do?" Um, and and so very a very harsh way of highlighting this this uh, uh, difference between Isaac Perlman's costs and benefits relative to maybe the average person, one that that Perlman himself recognizes. Um, and, and and so we think you know even in less harsh cases we're going to see this people who are particularly talented at an activity, and maybe perhaps. Also, when that particularly talented also might mean they are particularly talented to, relative to other people, but also relative to the, their other skills. 
those are the people who are going to become particularly passionate. So even if, if somebody is like kind of is quite good at something, but he's also quite good at lots of other things, that's somebody who we might not expect to become a very passionate person. It's really the folks who have these very stark comparative advantages, like the, the very extreme example of Itzhak Perlman, who we expect passions to arise in. So these are like kind of examples of ways in which we use this perspective. Uh, let me add one more insight if, if we have time for it. I'll, uh, um, well, maybe uh, just to kind of tie us back into the, the contrast with evolutionary psych, which is, um, in many cases, the rewards that you get from, from being uh, uh, this superstar who ends up developing an extreme passion and succeeding at it, you know, winning a Nobel Prize, for instance, or being the world's best violinist or chess player. Um, oftentimes the reward, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize comes really late in life. The reward is oftentimes, you know, in terms of your legacy. Um, uh, you know, oftentimes there isn't uh, too much time then to, you know, accrue reproductive success as a result of, of, of winning at this lottery. Um, and so it becomes, uh, you know, if it's very important, we're, we're is talking about the costs and benefits, but the costs and benefits are in terms of the kinds of things that we talked about earlier in this conversation, which we refer to as primary rewards, um, which include things like legacy and, and, and status. Um, that had some evolutionary connection to fitness, but need not now. So it's, you know, the argument we're, we're giving is not that like, the passions will always lead to like, you know, higher reproductive success or that the cost benefit analysis that Ares is describing is in terms of reproductive success. Um, it's in terms of things like status and um, w which may have related to reproductive success, but, but need not. Um, uh, and in order to understand passions, you kind of need to recognize that it need not, because you know a lot of times the rewards are in terms of things like legacies, which which don't don't pay out in offspring. Yeah, so uh, we've covered a lot of ground in these two conversations. Is there anything you would like to add to add before we go, or should we end it here? Uh, I I think that's great. Maybe maybe just to kind of pitch um, a. a follow-up conversations in case you're interested. Um, Ares is currently working on a book that focuses on this uh, applied uh, um, uh, prescriptive stuff on, on how to get people to be more pro-social. So, so maybe if and when your audience is interested in hearing more about that, I'm sure Ares would be happy to talk more about that. Um, and if and when you and your audience are, are, are interested in hearing more about some of the kind of experiments we do to test these models, our colleague Bethany Burham, uh, she leads uh, on a lot of these experiments. It, it could be fun to have her, her on um, to, to talk about some of that stuff. Yeah, of course, I will leave that on my notes and uh, just to let people know again that the book is Hidden Games, The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview and also a link to the first part of our conversation. So, Dr. Zoffman and Yoeli, thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, thank you, Ricardo. It's always a pleasure. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this episode until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there, starting at $1 per month. You also have links to PayPal. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Nlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at nlights.com. 
I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Fordens, Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bird Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, O'Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurban, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Eugnig, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Librand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adan Rosmani, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidis, Simon Fzal, Adrian Gagey, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, and Sunny Smith. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanag, Dam Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nun Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.